Again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 24 and studying a couple different chapters. Uh, we started this series a few months ago, uh, the gospel in Genesis. And uh, as we've been talking about Abraham, uh, we've, we've had to uh, skip and, and very uh, quickly tell some of these stories. And I haven't felt too bad about that because a little less than two years ago, uh, only months into COVID, when everyone was watching online, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but we had a sermon series on just Abraham. And so I preached a few different sermons on these specific chapters right here. And so I don't plan on re-preaching them, uh, but I do want to recap a good chunk of them. I want you to see where the gospel is in some of them. And I want to spend half the time on, again, Abraham's grandchildren, Esau and Jacob, who we did not hit in that six-week series. Uh, but first, starting off with Genesis 24, I want to encourage you. Take some time today, this week, read these chapters, verses uh, chapter 24 through 27. Uh, we're not going to be able to read all of it, obviously, in context, but uh, I want to share some things from each one of these chapters. Uh, first, we see in chapter 24 um, uh, how in his old age, Abraham uh, is making his, high, his highest servant swear to help find his son Isaac, a wife of their faith. Uh, and get good principles of what we see from here uh, about the importance of, of when finding a future spouse, uh, how God is involved with that, what to do, and what to look for with that, um, if that is the Lord's will. Uh, we know that that's, there's a calling to be singleness. We know there's contentment with that, even if we don't feel called, but obedient God's will. And uh, we know that there's also a wisdom and, and guidance uh, with that as well. And so when... Um, Abraham's trying to uh, find his uh, wife for his son uh, of their faith, not of the Canaanites who worshiped a false god. He approaches his highest servant, uh, and God grants this request out of what it says a couple different times in this chapter, his steadfast love for Abraham and Isaac as a woman named Rebekah was filling up water at the same spring as Abraham's servant who had, he had given this charge to uh, and was playing kind of matchmaker with uh, Isaac with. And so when doing so, he showed great kindness and hospitality toward Abraham. I'm sorry, she showed great hospitality and kindness toward Abraham's camp. And she invited them back to stay with her family uh, after the servant asked if they had room for them. And as that story unfolds in that chapter, we see that this was God's provision as Rebecca does later become Isaac's wife. So a couple quick things with this and on that topic. It is very, very important when it comes to seeking God's will in this important area of marriage and family. Uh, we know, see, that another scripture that Christians uh, dating uh, should be dating and marrying Christians like what you see in this chapter right here. We also know, believe, and see that parents of the faith should play a very important role and part in this area. Um, I'm not kind of trying to be legalistic here and saying it's this way or that way. It has to be courtship or it's dating like we've seen in the last hundreds of years. But I will say this, if there's one thing you see that's consistent in the scripture, parents that love Jesus have an important part in that. I'm not saying like the biblical ways prearranged marriage. And so we're going to set that up in the next couple of years here at GCC. But I am saying parents are an important role. I already heard some amens from the parents, not the students over there. Okay. They play a very important role in that area. And as they play that role, and at the same time, 
as people are seeking that, they are to seek for godly character and qualifications like you see here in Rebecca in this chapter. Yes, it says Rebecca was beautiful, but that isn't what was emphasized or important here. It was her, as you see in this chapter, fulfilling her roles and responsibilities in her family with godly character. As I encourage you, families, parents, Teach your kids that the words that matters the most in this area of dating, of finding a future spouse, it is God's, not the world's. I encourage you, pray for and with this area. Not turning it into an idol, but pray for this area. I used to personally pray this every day for my kids. When I'm home at night, and I tuck them into bed, I pray for them, and I pray for some certain specific things, and I'll do this three times a, a week, but before putting the bed, I pray for them in this area most nights. Not every night, but most nights. And now what that looks like, where Olivia, who's my seventh grade daughter, gets all embarrassed, like, why are you praying that every single time? Liam just kind of listens. My 10-year-old, he's like, mm. <laughs> um, uh, my uh, uh, daughter, uh, Lila Grace, who's seven, uh, she, she loves it. <laughs> she, she's like, I can't wait to be a wife and mommy. I'm like, if that's God's will, I don't know. I'm just praying because this is an important area, so I'm just praying for it. But she's just like, oh, I can't wait. And then Carter, I'll never forget, he's similar to Liam, who's just like listening. One time he said after a prayer, I think I mentioned this before to you guys, but one time after a prayer, he's like, Dad, I don't want to be a daddy. Why don't you want to be a daddy? Because I don't want to wipe my kids' butts. I'm like, uh, I can't argue there, okay? But God still may want you to be a daddy one time, okay? But as it says twice in this chapter, God's steadfast love is shown in doing this right while being content, not making it into an idol. Then we see in this next chapter, Abraham, who's been the focus over these last few weeks, leaving a gospel legacy. How he passes and we see him finishing well in spite of his mistakes. Shows that Abraham, in those mistakes, had, attempt to, had attempted to make amends with the broken family situations that was left behind. What's mentioned even in this chapter, chapter 25, of children with concubines. We see Ishmael actually come back into the picture and situation. But still in the end, we say Abraham, how he lived out his faith to the very end. And God fulfilled his promises as he passes away in that chapter. And I can't but help to ask, like we talked about a few years ago, when we read about Abraham passing along his faith, not as an inheritance because we can't do that with families and parents. It takes that individual saving faith, but we can, we can drop those seeds and create a culture where it can be watered and grown from the Lord. And so I ask you, how do you, how do I, how do we plan to live until we die as we read that in this chapter? Though we all don't know when that time will come for most of us, we have a good amount of days between now and then. But how does our faith affect those days? Chapter 25, verse 7 through 8, 
of Genesis, it says Abraham lived 175 years. And then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years. And look at this. I love this. And he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. This expression that verse 8 ends on stands for a practical burial ritual in which the body is allowed to decay at that time, and then the bones are gathered and placed in the family's kind of tomb with those who had gone before. But here it adds an eternal significance of Abraham joining his God-believing ancestors in eternal intimacy with his heavenly Father. His bones didn't just join Sarah's on earth in that tomb, but his soul joins in heaven. And they knew. They knew where he was. He lived 38 years after Sarah's death. And it says he died full of years in verse 8. In Hebrew, that word full right there is sabah which means full, and listen to this, the Hebrew says full and satisfied with his life. He lived a life that was full, just like God had promised and Jesus promises us. It's a secret to a legacy. Living a full life, a righteous life. Remembering that this life is not the end and remembering that there is a legacy that will be left. Every day, church, we have an opportunity to live that day to the fullest. And that's different when we say that here in comparison to self-help books in the world, right? It's not YOLO. It's what is described of Abraham here. To make these wise choices, to be full of joy, to be kind and love others well, to invest in the day that for the glory of God, to build the kingdom of God. In fact, going back to the hall of faith in Hebrews, where it talks about the faith of Abraham, we see how his gospel legacy is remembered by how he truly and fully lived out his faith in spite of his mistakes. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 12. It's also on the screen. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Look at verse 10. I love this. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And therefore, for one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many of the as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Again, I love verse 10, especially as it stuck out to me when preaching this a few years ago, this chapter alone, as it shows that a gospel legacy is by living today, but always remembering tomorrow and remembering who is the architect and builder of the foundations that we leave. 
We build today for tomorrow. And so I ask again, what are you and I doing now to set ourselves up to live faithfully and generously later? To do more ministry, not less. To do more. Church, how fulfilling would that be? Now, there's many with vocational jobs. Many who'd say, if I didn't work nine to five, I would spend more time with my grandchildren. I would spend more time serving at church. I would spend more time discipling. Find more time to try to plant seeds with those that need the gospel. You know, many who once said that in their very own churches, many I have found end up just watching TV or on their internet all day, watching their preferred news channel, maybe on social media, complaining about everything. Rarely or in most cases, not investing in others for the gospel. What will your last quarter of life look like with your faith lived out? And I understand it's tough to be positive about this. But that changes when we keep our eyes on Jesus. Abraham lived his life, even the last bit of it, fully, remembering what mattered most after he was gone. He's getting a gospel legacy. It's not fully realized sometimes until we're gone. Look at, going back to Hebrews, verses 13 and 16 through 16 says, in chapter 11, all these promises were still living by faith when they died. All the, I'm sorry, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I can't but help to read that and ask, what is going to be said at my funeral? Even if you don't have a funeral, what will be remembered by those surrounded in your life? I remember early on when really studying this chapter a few years ago, it was in the midst of the last dance coming out, the documentary on Michael Jordan and those infamous Chicago Bulls teams. I remember watching it and wondering, what will Michael Jordan be remembered for the most? The goat. I'm from Cleveland, so you know there's going to be a little bit of Controversy with me with that. But the goat, he's going to be remembered probably as the greatest basketball player of all time. What a feat. But put that aside. And think, is that 
the most important legacy one should want to leave behind. You know, when Kobe had passed, he's called a goat and known for his basketball skills, I couldn't but help to see and hear so much about fatherhood at that time. Not knowing or thinking he is the greatest father, but I just was surprised by how much people talked about fatherhood at that time for him. And then one person, a basketball player, that hasn't passed, but I remember when he retired and his Hall of Fame speech in comparison to the GOAT, Michael Jordan. And what was said and what I think is going to be remembered with him, David Robinson, when he retired, he said, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to teach and preach God's word, number one. Number two, I'm going to take full advantage of being a father. That's what David Robinson said. The admiral, what San Antonio knows, loves, is helping bring those championships. But he said, I don't want to be known for these things. I want to teach and preach God's word. And I'm going to be the best dang father I can be. The most important legacy that we can leave is one that's showing others Jesus. You know, to this day, Abraham is remembered and respected by Jews, by Muslims, by Christians. Even people that don't know, have saving faith, they remember and respect him. Many people refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name's always mentioned with it. How did Abraham's life affect Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even us? So when you're preparing to pass and you look back on your life, what will be remembered? I know mine. It's a quote from a guy named Count Zizendorf. He said, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. I want more than anything. People know, see, hear that because of the gospel, I try to strive to be a good father, a good husband, a good pastor, a good missionary, a good discipler. But I want them to remember more than anything, not what was good in those roles and responsibilities, but if there was anything good, it was just because of the gospel. I want to preach it, and I want that to be remembered and for me to be forgotten. And so the beauty of all this is, even is that that can change today. That today, some of you can uh, kind of reverse course, go in a direction where you strive by God's grace to leave such a legacy that matters. And it won't take as long as you may think to turn some of that around. Because a gospel legacy, it isn't fully realized until we're gone. And so we live for the most of it today, remembering tomorrow. And then at the end of chapter 25, we're now introduced to who we'll focus on the rest of this time here to some of Abraham's legacy. His grandchildren, Isaac's sons, Esau and Jacob. They're the first twins mentioned specifically in the Bible. And this story also serves as a warning of one's lost legacy and also God's mercy and grace we now receive in the gospel. 
Look at, at the end of chapter 25, verse 19. God's word says this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethul, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game but Rebekah loved Jacob. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? I'm going to die because I'm so hungry right now. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I read that. I don't know about you, but I know if this was true of our twins, it'd be sneaky little Lila Grace tricking poor clueless Carter, okay? No doubt in my mind if those are the roles. My wife's like, you don't, that's recorded. They're going to listen to that someday. And so starts an epic sibling rivalry that represents so much more in the paths that they go, but that was first started not just here, but before the beginning of the world. And division that's representing the world today, even between those who still receive that promise and those who don't, from here. Skip in chapter 26, which helps reveal God's promise to Isaac, a reminder in that way. But then we see Jacob and Esau's story unfold and how this all plays out in chapter 27 and also the gospel and some reminders. I'm not going to read this entire chapter. Again, want to encourage you to do that, especially before discussing it with your community group over this week. But in chapter 27, this plays out. I'll recap it. Isaac was old, couldn't see well. He knew his time to pass was coming. And so he asks who was his favorite son. It says in chapter 25, Esau, the oldest, to hunt and prepare a meal for him. And he says, and I will bless you before you die. 
coming with that blessing, starting from Abraham, of what would be the lineage of, he said, of, of the Messiah to come. And this was when Rebekah, with her favorite son, Jacob, overhears, is going to make good on her plan to trick Esau and her husband so that Jacob will then receive that blessing. And so as Esau went out to hunt to bring back game for his father, then be prayed and be blessed over, she put on baby goat skin on Jacob to emulate Esau's hairiness, as it was mentioned, and brought the mill to Isaac while Esau was away. And again, I'm going to be honest, I don't love, I've read this. This was actually the very first devotion I had to teach as like a 17 or 18 year old. I remember reading this like, ugh, like I don't love this. Feels icky and manipulative as Jacob is just straight up lying. Even his father asks how he came back from the hunt so soon. And you know what he says? Oh, your great God granted me success. I mean, this guy's pulling out the God card here and tricking his father. But we see how the plan worked. Isaac prays and blesses Jacob, thinking it was Esau. And the words that he says and that blessing is, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Key part of this blessing right here. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. And when Esau comes back, they realize what had happened. It says Isaac trembled very violently. That's what it says there in that chapter. Trembled very violently when realizing what had happened. It also says that with a bitter cry twice, Esau cries out to his dad, Bless me also, father. But Isaac knew that despite how it happened, even though it happened, with Esau, remember, selling his birthright out of carnal, temporary pleasure. I'm going to die. Feed me. I don't care. Have my birthright. But being so upset at the situation, says, Dad, bless me also. But Isaac knew that this was God's will. He had no control over it. And this caused Esau to hate his brother and to go off for vengeance against him. Now, out of this crazy story, there's two very important New Testament scriptures and one additional Old Testament scripture that comes from it. And before reading them and giving some points from them, know this. No one but God is right in this story. I hope that's a common theme that you're getting from Genesis. You know, I'm always shocked. I'll be honest. It is all God's word. That's why we're preaching and teaching it. But like a new Christian, I'm always a little bit shocked if somebody says, hey, just start reading from the beginning and they're not helping them in discipleship with it. Like that is a scary thing. <laughs> if you're like a new Christian, you're like start reading from Genesis and you get to all these things and like nobody's talking with them. I mean, the Holy Spirit can do it, but I'm telling you like, we need to help them through this stuff. Like, I want to help you. And so you read this. And first off, we need to know Esau's not the hero. Jacob's not the hero. Nobody's a hero, okay? 
Nobody's a hero except for God. And we'll see how he's sovereign over this story. And it doesn't justify their sin and actions. There's still consequences for it. But we do know and see that even this manipulative plan was somehow, some way, a part of God's plan. And so right after the author of Hebrews reminds us of how our Father God uses loving discipline for our sanctification and holiness. Right after what we've read so often with Hebrews, with the hall of faith and all those characters in the Old Testament. He reminds us, the writer of Hebrews, of God's irresistible grace in this story and a warning of sin and temporary pleasure and bitterness. Look at chapter 12, verse 15 through 17. It says this about this story. It says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single mill. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. A couple quick things from God's word reflecting on this story. First off, we do know and see. God gives it to us to show that bitterness and selfish sin can hinder God's grace. Esau's choice to sell his birthright, it is used here in the New Testament as an example of ungodliness. A godless person who put physical desires over what was supposed to be spiritual blessings that he was not content and patient for. And by this example, Esau teaches us to hold fast, even ourselves, to what is truly important to be content for, be patient for, even if it means denying the appetites of the flesh. Again, going back to what we read in the end of chapter 25. As he made a big deal and said, I am starving, I'm going to die. I don't even need my birthright unless I eat right now. Do you really think he was going to die at that moment in time? I mean, do you think he was like going to shrivel up all of a sudden bones and just like, no. It was his flesh saying, I need this, I need this now. And listen, church, how often do we get in trouble when temptation's before us and we say, I just need it right now. But not only selfish sins that can help hinder, but as it says here, the root of bitterness still defiles many today. And just like it said in this scripture right here, it still springs up and it still causes much trouble. Church, just being honest with both yourself and the Lord. How have you seen bitterness defile others around you? Can being honest with the Lord and yourself right now. How have you seen bitterness hinder your own relationship with the Lord and others? 
Do we take heed to the warning of part of the purpose of this story? Of what the author of Hebrews warns us about that still springs up and causes trouble and can hinder. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, because by it many become defiled. We also see is that last verse, verse 17, that there are wrong motives in repentance. I know some question and ask, does that mean, as it says here, there really is no chance to repent for him? And I believe that in context of chapter 25 and 27 in Genesis, along with what it says here, he desired to inherit that blessing. And that blessing doesn't come through grasping, but instead through trusting and being willing to wait on God, in which he wasn't. And I'm not so 100% sure that Esau was prevented from repenting as much as it was him seeking the blessing over repentance. See, Esau did indeed weep and repent in chapter 27, Genesis. But if you read it, what does he weep over? He weeps over the loss of his blessing, according to Hebrews 12 right here. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, but he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So it's saying that Esau sought his blessing, not repentance, with tears. And similar to Esau here, I do believe and think we need to check our motives a bit with repentance. It's important even when it comes to our children, others, to see what are the motives right here. Do I just want this to gain, but I don't know how to truly count the cost? Am I going to be watchful for fruit? Do I truly comprehend and understand? Am I willing to live the 180 degree lifestyle change? It's why so often in the past, and great motives with and coming from great ministries, you saw so many people make decisions for Christ because they wanted heaven, but didn't know how to repent and live for the Lord. Yeah, I'll take heaven. I'll take eternal life with God, but I don't even comprehend and understand what repentance and faith truly is. And then we see the other passage of Scripture, which I'll go by quickly with, but at least the Scripture is a good chunk. It says here, God chose the younger Jacob to carry on the Abrahamic covenant while Esau was providentially excluded from the Messianic line. And both Old and New Testament use the story of Jacob and Esau to illustrate God's calling and election. Malachi 1, verses 2 through 3, which is then later quoted in Romans chapter 9. Let's read Romans chapter 9, verse 6 through 16. And again, I will briefly explain it. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. 
But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac. And now here's the scary one for everybody. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. I'm going to be honest, there's a lot of people that would love to get rid of that verse right there. I'd, I'd like to get rid of the next two. It's God's word. And I trust it. She was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I, I find more trouble with that one. Although it's there for a purpose. And is actually quoting Malachi 1. That's what Malachi says about this story. That we know and see Jacob God loved, but Esau God hated. Verse 14, because in, in context you can't leave this out. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this brings up a couple things that I just want to hit real quick. And then let your community group leaders have all the rest. I'm just kidding. This brings up, of course, doctrine of election. Not the only time it says this or is taught in the scriptures. A simple question that kind of separates the two theologies, although they shouldn't be as separated as they are, is does God choose us or do we choose God? Simple way to kind of, of breaking down how these common systems of beliefs kind of think. A lot of times associate the words, of course, Calvinism versus Arminianism. Calvinism believes that God chose us for salvation. Arminianism believes that we chose God for salvation. If you study this in church history, uh, you see most Christians in the early church that would teach, preach, believe more Calvinistic or Reformed beliefs. But truthfully, both sides can be traced in church history. How it kind of first started was in the 1600s. There was a guy named Jacob Arminius who was a former tutor under John Calvin who started to disagree with the Reformed teachings. And he came up with five points or fillers, which uh, are pillars, which is come to known as Arminianism. Uh, and to counter that doctrine, the Dutch church and many surrounding Christians, they met for seven straight months, had 154 sessions to review and discuss. This conference was called the Synod of Dort. And quick side note, like sometimes I get upset at like today's culture arguing about second, third tier issues and like making them first tier, but like seven months. I mean, like, did people have jobs, families, and hobbies at this time? I don't know. But anyways, out of that conference, seven months long, came the five points of Calvinism. John Calvin wasn't even there, but most of his followers were, and they named it after him. Now, what this has to do with this passage right here, I'm just going to read the first two points of each kind of doctrine or theology uh, with Reformed or Calvinism. There's five pillars. 
Um, it's usually remembered by the acronym TULIP. Many people point to this exact chapter, Romans 9, who adhere to this theology. Uh, a couple different scripture passages show for each doctrine, but the first two of both is the most related and most important. That first pillar is total depravity in Calvinism. It states that man does have free will, but only in accordance to his nature, that we are sinners by nature and choice as a result. We cannot choose God because of our sinful nature, because of original sin. It proceeds to state that man's nature is corrupted so that one never freely chooses God unless the Spirit has regenerated him. That faith is God's act and a gift to man. And again, quite a few biblical references to support this belief. One example, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, More than anything else, a person's mind is evil, cannot be healed. No one truly understands it. Second pillar, which comes to this verse right here, is unconditional election. It states that God has previously elected who will and who will not be saved, and that his choice is in no way connected to the free will of men, that God's choice is the ultimate ticket for salvation, and furthermore, that one cannot foresee the selected people who make a choice for him or not. They were not chosen on that basis, but instead this pillar is also supported by a number of texts. Ephesians 1.11 saying, In Christ we were chosen to be God's people, because from the very beginning God has decided this in keeping with his plan, that he is the one who makes everything agree with in what he decides and wants. Again, the kind of differing theology, Arminianism, supported by those five points or pillars, um, and, and uh, those ones are uh, uh, a free will, conditional election, unlimited atonement, resistible grace, falling from grace. And I will say, uh, Calvinists get this one at least. They have a cool acronym, TULIP, uh, where that acronym would be FACURP. Okay? And so at least they get a point for TULIP over FACURP, which sounds like a hiccup burp right there. Um, but that first one is free will. It states, man's sinful nature has not completely removed his ability to make a decision against or for God. The Holy Spirit does not force people to choose salvation, but enlightens them enough so that they may choose salvation, and that faith is man's act, a gift to God. This is supported again, number of texts, one being John 7, 17. If people choose to do what God wants, that they will know what teaching comes from God and not from me, as Jesus had said. Second point, which has to do more with this text, Conditional election. It declares that, the God, that, the God knew, that God knew who would choose to be saved, and in response to the act of free will, he chose them to be saved, and therefore the decision to choose, choose salvation is a human act and not the forced will of God. Therefore, Romans 8.29 would be an example passage of that. God knew them before he made the world. He decided that he would be like a son so that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers. Now listen, I want to encourage you as we kind of conclude here, not just with a theology lesson from seminary, but plea from the heart of a couple things. One, this is not an issue to divide over. And that both sides have extremes. I've seen the extremes of hyper-Arminianism, which can lead to open theism. Openness and the open view, it's a theological position dealing with human free will and its relationship to God and the nature of the future. It's the teaching that God has granted to humanity free will and that order for that free will to be truly free. The future free will choices of individuals cannot be known ahead of time by God. That's dangerous. 
And open theism, future is either knowable or not knowable. And for open theists who hold that the future is knowable by God, they maintain that God voluntarily limits his knowledge of free will choices so that they can remain truly free. Again, other open theists maintain that the future being non-existent is not knowable even by God. Again, that's dangerous. Another extremism that comes from this is, not saying they all believe this, even though it's accused, that universalism, universalism comes from it. That all people will be going to heaven because Jesus again died for kind of sins of the world. There's also, in my opinion, although I wouldn't put it in exactly heretical, but I do think that there can be some danger in, in, in uh, not believing in perseverance of the saints. Although, again, I believe somebody that can be a professing Christian and believe that you can lose your salvation. We do not believe that. Um, I do not believe that. I, we will not teach that as a church. Although I do believe you can be a believer. And I think there's, there's danger, again, in not believing in total depravity. But there's also dangers of hyper-Calvinism. Uh, where people who adhere more to that have a void of mission and prayer. That they get to a point where they say God will save elect people and doesn't even need us to share the gospel, to pray, to preach the gospel. So why do it if they're just going to become Christians anyways? That is dangerous. That is dangerous. By God's grace, the most famous Calvinists have never treated it that way. And also another danger from that is double predestination, which is the belief that God creates some people whose purpose and existence to be sent to hell. It's one thing to believe that God predestines and elects people to be saved, and it's another that he predestines and elects people to go to hell. Again, that is the opposite of what I believe, a God who deeply desires all to be with him again and is still just. That God does not desire or delight in people going to hell, but it has its purpose in the void of what we know, sin, its consequences. Also, just going to be honest here, especially coming from somewhat of a background in education where I've seen some of the hyperness and witch hunting with people who disagree with one's theology. Ultimately, it is a second, third tier open-handed issue as we discussed in the summer when it comes to conscience and convictions. And I do believe one can believe a bit of both. But you cannot get away like the scripture at hand regarding election and God choosing. John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, fruit that should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You also see, I do feel like there is I mean, this human standpoint, there's a choosing. I don't know about you, but when I received Christ, I wasn't a puppet. I wasn't like, yes, God, I am yours, okay? Like, there was a draw, there was a, I need this. And true comprehension and understanding. And I know there's even scripture of a knocking on the door and a pleading of that way. And when receiving Christ, again, I don't feel like I'm a puppet now, like doing what God had said. I have an affectionate, intimate relationship with my Lord. And that has nothing to do with, again, oh, he elected, I'm the frozen chosen. And so now I just have to do this. And again, as much as we can debate and argue on those things, I think the more important thing that really quickly want to answer is verse 13 
How can God hate? Well, everybody's arguing about that. That should be the one thing where we do want to know and seek, Lord, what does this mean for me and others? And when studying the scriptures, I think it's critically important again to always study the context of a particular Bible verse or passage. In this instant, where Malachi and the Apostle Paul using the name Esau to refer what I believe to be the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau. Where Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Esau and Jacob, as we read about. And God chose Jacob, whom he later renamed Israel, to be the father of his chosen people and the Israelites. And where God rejects Esau, who was also called Edom, he did not choose him to be the father of his chosen people. And where Esau and his following descendants, the Edomites, were in many ways blessed by God, but overall cursed at the end of that blessing right there. And so considering that context, I don't think God loving Jacob and hating Esau has anything to do with what we know as human emotions of love and hate. But instead, I believe this has everything to do with God choosing a man and his descendants while rejecting another man and his descendants coming back from, again, that blessing, that promise, where he says, every, where he says this I love and, 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 and this I hated. I don't think it's the specific man, but it, the Bible could very well say Abraham I loved. And this path and man I hated. God chose Abraham's son Isaac instead of Abraham's son Ishmael. And so it could very well say Isaac I loved, Ishmael I hated. I think Romans 9 is saying that loving Jacob and hating Esau was entirely related to which of them that God had chose. And that even hundreds of years after Jacob and Esau had died, we see the Israelites and the Edomites as bitter enemies. The Edomites, who often aided Israel's enemies in attacks on Israel at that time, and were Esau's descendants, again, fulfilling in that blessing that brought God's curse upon themselves. And we know that God hates sin. The cross of Jesus Christ is proof of it, right? But this we know as well. God is merciful. He is merciful. Going back to that Hebrews passage, we're talking about God's grace. We don't want to hinder that. He is gracious. So the better question should be this. How can God even have mercy with how sinful that we are? How can he even have mercy? And to answer that, as we conclude, I want to read the first five verses that people seem to overlook before they get to the election. God hate, God loves part Look what the Apostle Paul says, and hear his heart when it comes to people. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, and I wish this. Listen to what he's saying here. I wish that I myself was a part of the accursed and wouldn't receive Christ and go to hell and be cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, them the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
Again, I think we forget that when we read the rest of the scripture. That in trusting the Lord, whether you lean toward election or not, but still know at heart that there's going to be some people that are saved and some people that are not, whether you believe it's by their choice or not. But do you have a heart like Paul that desires to see them to receive it? Oh, how those who yearned for that Messiah for so long, that was so obedient in all these things. And for us, those who were de-churched or unchurched and went through these things and are blinded by their sin, they don't even realize what they're standing for, what they're saying, what they're teaching their kids, because they're blinded. Do you have a heart for them to receive it? That's what's important here. That God has displayed his love for any and everyone to receive that by what he did on the cross, taking that sin upon himself, rising from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and offering it as a gift. The blessing is ours when we repent of our sin for the motives of knowing I know what the cost and I know that it's worth it and I have saving faith that he did it and I want to receive that and I want to share that so that they can have that. To us belongs that covenant, that blessing, that adoption. You know, as many people have a problem with the election, do you know that most times when it's mentioned, it's along with adoption into his family? You know, when a father says, I choose you to come into this, and we're going to offer that to others. That's what's important here. Let's pray. Father, there's great mercy and love in this passage that can be debated, that can be used and misused. And we know that you've chosen to give us that great mercy and love and that you still give it. And I pray, I pray that we walk in it and we have a deep desire to share it with others. As we sing right now of how deep that love is for us when we go before the throne that is made possible through your son, Jesus Christ. Let's go before that right now as beneficiaries of that promise and the ability to share that with others. We pray this in your name, Jesus.